Hello, and welcome to Player Advantage. My name is Marcus, and I am your host through the next 45 minutes of whatever is about to come out of my mouth. Uh, this show has no set genre. <laughs> Don't come into this thinking that it is a video game podcast, that it's a sports podcast, that it's a wrestling podcast, that it's a comic book podcast, that it's any of these things. Because it is none of these things, and it is also all of these things. I have a lot of different interests, and I talk a lot. <laughs> That's the show. This week, we're talking about stuff like the Boondocks, like whatever this mystery Devil May Cry announcement is that Matt Walker is teasing, uh, about the Patriots being eliminated from the playoffs about uh, the Chicago Bulls being uh, the source of my waking nightmares. But first, we're going to talk about Life is Strange. I still have not played Life is Strange 2. I downloaded it onto my Xbox because it's available via Xbox Game Pass. If you have an Xbox, uh, Xbox Game Pass is like three months for a dollar. It's basically Netflix for video games. Just get it. It's great. It's how I beat the Outer Worlds. Uh, but when I say I want to talk about Life is Strange, I mean I want to talk about Life is Strange, the comic uh, that picks up after the end of the f- of the first game and centers on Max and Chloe and what they're doing. If you're wondering how that game centers on Max and Chloe, given the way the first game ends, uh, use your imagination. Uh, so a year after the end of Life is Strange 1, Max and Chloe are living in Seattle, and Max's powers are being very weird. I will leave the story at that because the story isn't so much as important as the quality of this book. Because I think it's very well written, I think it's very well drawn, and it does something that the game kind of failed at, which is that it isn't implying anything. It Like... It's not going, oh, this is for your imagination. It's for uh, you to decide how it goes, which is the nature of it not being a choose-your-own-adventure story. In the game, Max and Chloe's relationship was either platonic or romantic, depending on how you played it. If you wanted Max to be with Warren for some reason, (laughs) for some absurdly heterosexual reason you wanted max to be with warren you could do that but this game or the the comic rather doesn't pull any punches about what max and chloe's relationship is which is nice it does a really good job uh with their relationship i don't think they ever say explicitly hi i'm max and this is my girlfriend chloe or hi i'm chloe and this is my girlfriend max because it doesn't have to it does a really good job of showing you the intimacy between them and what their relationship is without ever having to use words, which is nice. And kind of like the point of the medium. Comic books are a visual thing. You can use art to show the relationship between two people without ever saying it, without ever having to tell the reader the reader can just use their eyes and tell and be able to tell what it is 
It reminds me a lot of the uh, Pete Woods, John Lewis, Robin run, which if you've ever met me at any point within the last eight years, you know that's maybe my all-time favorite superhero comic run just because it's so good at this exact thing of showing the characters in these really domestic, really mundane situations in a way where you're invested in it. Where I think very rarely in that run does Tim ever say, my girlfriend Stephanie. You'll just see them sitting on the couch and she's got her head on his shoulder or something like that. As a matter of fact, the only times that uh, Tim does try to explain things to people in that run, they misconstrue what he means. Uh, which is which is great. And shout out to John Lewis and Pete Woods for making a great comic. And shout out to the creative team on Life is Strange for making a really good comic. Because... It's adapting something, keeping it somewhat true to the spirit of the original, uh, because I don't believe that when you are adapting something, you have to just make it one-to-one. But keeping true to the spirit of the original, keeping it true to those characters, and having everybody act like themselves is really... is. Something that I think a lot of adaptations lose sight of. Cough, cough, Game of Thrones, cough, cough. And this book does it really, really well. And I don't think anyone from Don't Nod is involved in the making of it. I want to say Titan Comics is producing it. And you can tell that the people writing it really love those characters and really want to dig into the things that the book couldn't. Um, Or the games couldn't, rather. And it's very nice. Another thing that I've been getting into lately, uh, spurned on by my YouTube recommendation section, and also just conversations that come up in life, is I've been rewatching The Boondocks. And what a great television show that people love for maybe the wrong reasons. And I think I might write about this at length. Um... But the Boondocks is so, so good in the first season. And not for the reason that people think that it's good in the first season. Um, Because the thing that people think about the Boondocks, or at least that it appears that people think about the Boondocks as we head into this year where it's going to be revived as a show on HBO Max, people seem to think the thing that makes the Boondocks special is that it's not afraid to offend anybody. And sure... That is important, that it's willing to say the things that it wants to say without it, without fear that someone might not like it, i.e. Tyler Perry. (laughs) Because if you look on Hulu, which is where I've been watching The Boondocks, that Tyler Perry episode is gone. Uh, It's just not there. It's only available on the DVD releases because Tyler Perry was so angry at that episode that he got it pulled off TV it's pulled off streaming service. Like, you can't watch this episode anywhere unless you buy the DVD or unless someone uh, uploads it to, like, Daily Motion or Vimeo because nothing ever comes off Daily Motion or Vimeo no matter how hard you try to copyright it. There's an episode in the first season where Granddad gets to open up a restaurant, and it's maybe the best episode in the season. It might be the best episode in the series. Um, Riley was here. It was also a really good one, um, where Riley hangs out with that Bob Ross XP, which is cool. But there, this episode's in season one, 
I want to say it's called the Itis. Granddad opens up a restaurant. And he opens it up because Ed Wunsler realizes that, oh, if I, if I get this, uh, if I get this colored restaurant over here, it'll drive the property values way down. In my head, Ed Wunsler sounds like Vince McMahon. Uh, <laughs> it'll drive the property values down, pal, and I can buy that park. So he helps Granddad open the restaurant, and Huey has this conversation with Granddad that I adore. It's it's some of the best writing in that series. It's some of the best writing of that decade. It's some of the best writing I've... Just this one conversation um, where Huey is talking to Granddad about how his restaurants ruin the neighborhood and how the police don't show up anymore when there's trouble and how ambulances don't come by. Um, and, Hugh, and Granddad says... Uh, boy, shut up. This is your culture. Uh, the, the, the line is Huey says, this food is poison. And Granddad says, boy, this is your culture. And uh, Huey says, well, then the culture is poison. And it's such an encapsulation of what that show started out as, uh, where Huey is too smart for his own good. And he's kind of, it kind of gets him in trouble sometimes. He's blinded by his naivete. Uh, but more than that, it's the show itself is as a, I want to say it was Tunerific Tariq on YouTube. He said very well that the show is a equal part celebration, uh, and criticism of black culture, um, where, for example, like the MLK episode. Uh, where MLK comes back and he's like disappointed in the way the world has changed. Um, not just as it pertains to black people, uh, but everyone remembers the scene in that episode where he starts yelling at everybody. And it's like, what, what the hell are you doing? What is this? But it's the bit where he says um, that he doesn't agree with the war in Iraq. And he's labeled anti-American. Now, these are views that are in line with what we understand Martin Luther King's views to be. But because the world has changed in this way uh, the last 20 years, um, his views are now perceived as controversial, as, um, as surprising that he would say this. Uh, and he says to Huey, uh, when Huey is trying to put together the... Uh, I don't remember what they ended up calling it, but he's trying to start a new political party uh, for black people. And he, Huey says, you have to be the one to lead it. You're Martin Luther King. And he goes, I don't know, Huey. People don't really like me. Let's go get Oprah. Or how about we go get Oprah? And he's like, no, it has to be you. And then at the end of the episode, Oprah is president. People took that to mean... Oh, this TV show wants Oprah to be president or thinks Oprah would be a good president. And all it's saying really is that people will always stick with the safe thing that's popular instead of what might be the right thing necessarily. Um, it's just a really good show. And like Riley, 
uh, is kind of the character that's the poster child for the a for the show uh, and a for the idea that the world now is too sensitive uh, compared to how sensitive the world was 10 years ago and that people would try to get the boondocks canceled again um, and that people are just too sensitive for to handle Riley because Riley says uh, wildly he says things that a kid shouldn't say which are the which is the purpose of the character but he also says things like you gay and stop doing all that gay shit and he's just like generally a homophobic eight-year-old the point of riley and it, it's very obvious watching the show all at once you know i would have never got this obviously when i was 10 and the show was first airing and i didn't get it when i was 15 like i kind of got it but not to the level i understand it at at 25 Riley uh, represents how children are influenced by the world around them and about how children are influenced by the media and specifically how black children are uh, influenced by particularly young black boys are influenced by the hyper masculine ideal that is put forth in quote unquote black media. And that's why Riley looks up to guys like Thugnificent. It's why his heart is broken when he looks up to Gangstalicious and Gangstalicious is gay. Because Riley believes that gayness equals weakness. Um, you know, that if you are a man and you like other men, then therefore you are soft and weak. Um, and that you aren't a real man. Riley believes this because he's been influenced by the media, which is so, like, how do I put this in a way that doesn't sound preachy? You know how when Young Thug did, uh, when he wore a dress for the cover of Jeffrey, uh, which is a really, really good album cover. Um, it's it's a really good album too, but that cover is really cool. It's just Young Young Thug there. In this really elaborate dress with this big hat on. It looks super cool. Um, but when that came out, I remember seeing all of these posts on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram of just like, oh, this is what's cool in the streets now. You know, um, my rappers dress like, this. like, I remember my dad sharing one like this. And because my dad was born in the 70s and all this but my dad listens to Prince, so I don't think he really understands, like, the hypocrisy of it all. Like, anyway, a lot of just like, oh, you know, your rappers dress like this, but my rappers dress like this, and it's a picture of N.W.A. You know, it, it was, it's, I saw a lot of that. I saw a lot of things saying like, oh, Young Thug and this album cover and letting your boys watch, uh, you know, play with dolls and all these other things. It's contributing to the, to the, uh, what's the word they like to use? The, uh, the emasculation of the black man and the feminization of the black man. And RuPaul is a poison to the community. And, uh, they're trying to destroy the black family by emasculating the black man. You know, high level hotep shit. And Riley Freeman would absolutely say those things because Riley is influenced by people who say things like that. That's why when he finds out that Gangsta Delicious, who he just risks life and limb with, 
is gay. That's when he perceives him as weak. Not when Gangsalicious proves to be a coward. Not when Gangsalicious proves that his whole facade is a lie and that he's super afraid of everything, that he definitely doesn't want to die because he's like a person and people don't want to die. It's why Riley, when his chain gets stolen by Butch Magnus, why he doesn't want to tell Thugnificent because he's like, no, I'm a man. I can handle this on my own. And Thugnificent looks him in the eye and says, Riley, the whole point of being in a crew is that you never have to handle anything alone. The whole point of having friends is that someone always has your back. And Riley doesn't understand that. It's the basketball episode where Riley knows that he can't actually shoot, but he's been so influenced by the world around him that he thinks, oh, but I can dribble. I can play ball like Allen Iverson, except I can't shoot. I'm going to be the greatest basketball player of all time. And then he doesn't even try out for the team. Tom doesn't think to have him try out for the team because Tom is supposed to represent a completely different idea where he's like an irresponsible adult. And also, uh, his name is Tom. And he's kind of like a, I don't know, I, I guess his relationship to the boys, you could kind of call him their uncle. Tom is also easily influenced, but that's a different story. Uh, Riley is so, he believes his own hype. Because all he knows is the hype. And then when he gets embarrassed because he doesn't know how to do anything but dribble. He never learned the fundamentals. He just learned the flash. He's all, he's all style, no substance. He gives up. He goes home. He throws his uniform in the trash. And he's just like, I give up. I'm never going to play basketball again. And Huey, again the closest thing resembling a, a rational person goes like, so you're just going to give up without even trying. This is why you're supposed to practice Riley Riley again, influenced by Allen Iverson because it's 2005 goes, Oh, that's what practice is for. Because earlier when he showed up to the practice, uh, Tom says, Riley, aren't, why aren't you in your practice clothes? We need to practice. He says, man, I ain't going to practice, you know, to kind of harp on the Allen Iverson, uh, practice interview, which is about a completely different thing, but I digress. It's a really good show, and I think that it was very relevant in 2005 when the first season aired, 2008 when the second season aired, 2010, uh, and even four, season four, which was pretty weak. I think it still had a lot to say, but it said it a lot through the lens of Grandad and Ruckus because the show got popular for the wrong reasons, and everyone just wanted to hear John Witherspoon say, damn it, boy, and hear Ruckus uh, be the worst. Also, uh, you know that that show is a satire and not a true-to-life depiction of anything because no one tries to shoot and kill Uncle Ruckus. Because other black people still try to associate with Ruckus. Yes, those people are Granddad and Tom, but still. So speaking of shows that air on Hulu, or rather, I guess, aired on Hulu, uh, Marvel's Runaways put out its third and presumably final season in December. Finished that off. I maintain that of all of the... Marvel live-action shows, or at least the ones I've seen, Runaways is the strongest uh, because it has so many moving pieces, and it doesn't do the thing that uh, the earlier shows did. Like, Luke Cage and Season 2 of Daredevil are the guiltiest of this, which is the switch villains 
uh, halfway through the series as a means of artificially extending the series. Um, Runaways does switch antagonists halfway through season three, but it's set up earlier in the series uh, where uh, Morgan Le Fay, who is, this isn't a spoiler because they said it in all the promotional material, Morgan Le Fay, who takes over from Jonah as the primary antagonist of season three, is hinted at uh, at the end of season two uh, with Nico's powers getting weird. Uh, And then she's hinted at earlier in season three up until the point where she actually shows up. Um, versus like Luke Cage has it the worst. It's the worst it's ever been in Luke Cage because what happens with that show was that, uh, so Luke beats Cottonmouth and Mariah deals with that problem. And then Cottonmouth goes away and then suddenly Diamondback shows up and then they deal with Diamondback. And then the show just goes on for another two episodes after they find out the truth about Diamondback. Like, they just go to Atlanta for an episode just because? Like, oh, I could have found out all this information at home. But he had to come do this in the church that I grew up in for some reason. It's all very dumb. Runaways doesn't have that problem. Uh, Partially because there are so many things going on in Runaways at any given time. That you can always, not necessarily explain it away, but there are so many story threads where every character has their own thing going on that nothing feels like, oh, that could have wrapped up. Nothing feels like it runs too long. Nothing overextends itself. Um, It's a really strong show. It has a, uh, there's a crossover episode with Cloak and Dagger, which I think is really, really good. Um, and it, it's a good enough crossover episode. And I think this is the mark of any good crossover, uh, which is it made me want to watch cloak and dagger, which I might do here in the near future. Uh, because like if you go back and watch any of the power Rangers team up episodes, um, they always, the good ones at least always made me want to go, damn, I should go watch the show that this originally came from. Like, my favorite one is uh, Reinforcements from the Future. The uh, That's one of my favorites. That one, um, the In Space Lost Galaxy team-up is really good. Uh, the Lightspeed, Lightspeed Time Force one is really good. And uh, the Time Force Wild Force one is really good. Those are all really good episodes of those shows. And granted, those are from the era of Power Rangers, uh, that 98 to 01 stretch. Uh, where they started skewing more towards older viewers and the Rangers were always adults. and uh, it's Those are from those really good seasons. But like if I went back right now and I watched that Time Force uh, Lightspeed episode again, I'd probably just end up watching all the Lightspeed again. I'd probably end up watching all the Time Force again. That's just the mark of a really well-made crossover episode. And the Runaways Cloak and Dagger episode, it fits, and it made me want to watch Cloak and Dagger. Uh, Which, again, two characters I did not see myself... Like, everything about that sentence, uh, the Runaways Cloak and Dagger crossover, that seems so nuts to me eight years ago. 
because uh, what a collection of characters you don't expect people to care about. But I guess now, in the world that we live in, where everything's so plugged in, um, where you can look around and you can see, like, oh, wait, no, there totally is a market for people who want to see, uh, you know, Nico and Carolina and Alex and how all that plays out and see Gert and Chase and see all those things and see fucking Tandy and Ty, two characters I did not ever expect to be on television, period. Like, if anything, I would expect them to be, like, Easter egg characters in a Spider-Man movie, right? Where, like, there was... I remember reading that there was a casting for someone in one of the Spider-Man movies where the character was named Cindy, and it's a it's supposed to be a reference to Cindy Moon. Cindy Moon is a character I don't expect to ever, at least not anytime soon in a live-action capacity, see. Uh, and for a long time, the same thing can be said with Cloak and Dagger, who their own books weren't moving a lot of units. Um, they were best served showing up as side characters in Spider-Man stories, uh, similar to like Shang-Chi, who I'm surprised is getting a TV show. You know, Marvel Studios, uh, Marvel Studios shut down Marvel TV and they're putting their own TV division there to for Disney Plus and all that. And so it wouldn't surprise me if Cloak and Dagger come back for that. Uh, and definitely the way that season three of Runaways ends, it wouldn't surprise me if they come back because it leaves off in such a way where it's like, okay, there's time travel involved. And so we have to see how things, you know, we can see how things play out from where the series ends, from the last thing you see in the series to the point in time where characters start coming back from. Like, there's a whole world of stuff there that they imply is still going to happen, or at least some of it, and it would be a really good idea, I think, for something like Disney Plus to pull an existing show that already has an established fan base, uh, because people really like Runaways. They have a really active social media presence. People really dig that show. So I can see it being a really good idea for Disney to grab that show uh, and put it on Disney Plus. Season 1 is already there. So I guess it might be time-locked to Hulu because uh, Season 1 came out in 2017. So I would assume Season 2 will be there sometime this year. Season 3 will end up there sometime next year. Um, it's totally possible that they just put it on Disney, put the other seasons on Disney Plus uh, and, uh, and continue it. Um, cause I think all of the actors involved, um, are still pretty into it, uh, or at least they appear to, um, Greg Sulkin, who plays Chase has a great performance. Uh, he's incredible. Um, this season does some of the best work he's done the whole show. Um, Brittany Itabashi, uh, who plays, uh, I think I'm pronouncing that right, uh, who plays uh, Tina Minoru. She's excellent. She's probably the MVP of the Ishibashi. My mistake. Brittany Ishibashi. She's probably the MVP of the whole season um, because uh, as it's set up at the end of season two, she's kind of a different character at the beginning of season three, and then she goes back to herself, but she's different now like tina in season one 
and Tina in season three, or at the end of season three, are such radically different people. Uh, where in season one, she's been dealing with everything that came with being part of Pride, and she's the very stone serious uh, CEO of Wizard, um, and Robert plays foil to that. Uh, he's really he's a really good character. Um, he's probably my favorite character in the whole show, just because he has a really really interesting arc as it pertains to his relationships with his family. Um, but her in season one, where she's this very serious, uh, very wound tightly, all kind of cold uh, person, versus in season three, uh, where she is actively trying to be uh, involved in her daughter's life and actively trying to save her relationship with her husband, who uh, she, in a... Uh, in season one is very disconnected from him to the point where he's having an affair. Um, season three, her is very just involved with Robert involved with Tina or with Nico and involved with the other, at least trying to be involved with the other kids and keeping them safe, uh, which was always their intent. But it really changes with her in season three, and I think Brittany Shibashi does a excellent job. Uh, just a just a great performance from her the whole season. Um, just the whole cast is great uh, this season, um, but she really stands out above everybody else. Um, so if you haven't watched season three of Runaways, if you haven't watched any of Runaways, I really recommend it. If you are into kind of like a soft Marvel universe. Uh, and I say that in the sense that it's not really connected to everything. It's connected to a couple things. They mention a couple things. Um, but you don't have to have watched everything else to be into it. You don't even have to watch Cloak and Dagger, which is cool. Um, because Cloak and Dagger are very quick to explain what's going on, where they're from, uh, and what they're doing. That being said, take a shot. Every time either one of them says the word New Orleans or the phrase New Orleans and uh, you'll have cirrhosis by the end of the first half of the crossover. So starting out our news portion of the podcast uh, it's a lot of stuff about wrestling. I promise this isn't a wrestling podcast, but a lot of stuff has happened in the world of wrestling over the last week, um, starting with... Uh, Unfortunately, the passing of Soul Man Rocky Johnson. Soul Man Rocky Johnson, uh, best known for be, for two things primarily. First, being one half of the first ever black tag team champions in WWF with Tony Atlas. Uh, and being the somewhat estranged father of The Rock. Uh, Rock tells a story in his book. Uh, the Rock says that he and his dad had a very weird relationship, uh, especially about him going into wrestling. Uh, and it's just bizarre, kind of. You know, he's 74 uh, years old, so it's natural causes. It's not like he suddenly was like abruptly murdered or anything like that. Um,. But yeah, it's just a weird blow to wrestling history. He's 
like I said, one half of the first ever black tag team champions. And so he'll always hold that distinction. Um, went in the WWE Hall of Fame in 2006, I believe. Uh, Soul Man wasn't a guy you heard a whole lot of stories about, uh, especially after the 70s. Um, you know, most people now just know him as The Rock's dad, but he was much more than that. And uh, wrestling history loses a uh, loses a great loses uh, someone who means a lot to history. And that's uh, it's just a weird thing to hear suddenly. Uh, the other big stories first, we have Impact Wrestling's Hard to Kill pay-per-view. Um, and look, if you had told me five years ago, A, that Impact would still be running, uh, B, that they would have the nerve <laughs> to name their pay-per-view, uh, their first pay-per-view of the new decade, Hard to Kill, referencing the fact that they've almost gone out of business every year since 2011, uh, I would have laughed because 2015, 2016, I was fully of the mindset that Matt Hardy was going to end up being the final TNA world champion and that the company would go under and WWE would buy the tape library. I still think that might happen, <laughs> but I think that Ring of Honor goes under and uh, and gets their tape library bought first because, boy, what a weird turn Ring of Honor took in the last year. But Impact did their hard-to-kill pay-per-view in Dallas uh, this past weekend, um, and the story they've been telling over the last year is that Tessa Blanchard, or it was about Tessa Blanchard and Sammy Callahan, and it finally came to a head uh, in the way that most people, myself included, saw it playing out seven months ago with Tessa Blanchard winning the Impact World Championship, becoming the first woman in the, that company's history to win their world title, becoming the first woman in any major North American uh, promotion to win a world championship, the WWF had the chance to do that with China back in 1999, 2000, uh, especially 99. They really had a, a chance with her to do that, and they didn't um, for a lot of reasons. Um, and I guess now they're pretty glad they didn't, or I guess three or four years ago they were glad that they didn't, and then now they're acknowledging her again, which is nice, but it would have been nicer to do it when she was alive. Sorry, I'll get off my soapbox now. Uh, but Tessa Blanchard wins the Impact World Championship, which would be a great story, a great way for Impact to kick off the next decade with her as their top babyface. If it wasn't for Twitter, <laughs> if this had happened in 2008, uh, you know, with like Gail Kim or Taylor Wilde or Awesome Kong, we wouldn't be in this boat. But it happened in 2020 with Tessa Blanchard. Uh, so we are in a weird place as this story, uh, goes. So on Saturday, Tessa tweeted something to the effect of, uh, it's really sad that women can't support other women. Uh, and this was Tessa, not just kicking a hornet's nest, but she just stuck her whole foot in it. 
and then stuck that foot, which was still in a hornet's nest, in her mouth. This prompted Allison K, a.k.a. Sienna, uh, formerly of TNA, currently of the National Wrestling Alliance, to tweet back to her and say, Hey, remember that time uh, when we were in Japan and you spit on a black woman and called her the N-word? Was that supporting women? The audacity of this tweet. Which ignited a firestorm, and uh, rightfully so, because holy hell, <laughs> what... What a bomb to drop on a Saturday morning. Uh, This also prompted Chelsea Green of WWE to say, basically say that uh, when she was in the locker room at TNA, I believe at the time she was uh, Laurel Van Ness, she, she, being Tessa, belittled her uh, and just made her feel unwelcome and just was kind of a bully. Uh, Tessa tried to stand up for herself and say, hey, I'm not a bully. I didn't do all this. You have my number. Why don't you call me? Uh, you know, I've never been anything but supportive of other women. And then Kavita Devi, uh, who is still in NXT. She was in the Mae Young Classic a couple years ago. Uh, she prompted, she promptly said, uh, that's not the case. You know, that wasn't the case in the Mae Young Classic, which Tessa was also a part of. Um, And a lot of people reference the fact that there's a reason that Tessa was sort of in WWE three or four years ago, and then suddenly wasn't. Um, And has been an impact for the last couple years. After the match, after the show, uh, Tessa got on the mic, uh, and basically... (laughs) Like, gave the lamest apology. Um, she never stuck up for the... She never mentioned, like, the whole spitting on the Rosa Negra, who was the the woman in question in Japan. Uh, she just kind of went, Ah, I'm human. I've made mistakes. I haven't always been the nicest person. Um, but, hey, I'm the champion now. That's cool, right? And it's just the latest in a string of behavior from people in kind of this day and age, um, who say and do things, and then when they are held accountable for those things, get upset that they're being held accountable for those things, and then just try and do anything they can to cop out of it, and go, oh, you know, everyone makes mistakes. Me stepping on my cat's tail at 3 o'clock in the morning, that's a mistake. That's an accident. But spitting in a person's face and developing a reputation for bullying, belittling, demeaning your coworkers, the other people around you, that's not mistaken, especially when it happens multiple times over the course of years. That's deliberate. That's entitlement, I guess. You know, I don't know Tessa personally. Um, I can't say with confidence that she's entitled, that she's a racist, that she's a bully. Because I don't know her. I know these stories about her. And a lot of them seem real credible because they're all backed up by other people. The fact that Chelsea Green, Kavita DeV, Allison Kay, uh, just a bunch of other people all said these things independently of each other. That kind of lends credence to it. Um... 
you know, and so maybe she does have kind of a chip on her shoulder because her dad is Tully Blanchard and she was raised by Magnum T.A. And in a way, she is kind of, quote unquote, wrestling royalty. But you don't hear these stories about Charlotte Flair. You don't hear these stories about The Rock. I mean, you kind of hear these stories about Randy Orton, but Randy Orton kind of strikes me as the kind of guy who would be this person regardless of the fact that his dad was at the first WrestleMania. Because, like, people don't rate Bob Orton the same way they rate Tully Blanchard, you know? Uh, the, the thing that kind of struck me as bizarre about this whole thing with Tessa Blanchard was how quickly, um, before she could even defend herself, how quickly other people came to her defense and how quickly and profoundly and loudly uh, some people... Uh, defended her uh, in like, namely Melissa Santos uh, and Moose Moose right away started to play the, you uh, basically implying that Chelsea and Allison and all the others were saying this the day before the biggest, uh, the biggest match of Tessa's career that they were saying all this because they're jealous of her. That none of their none of them are ever going to be in her position or what have you. The problem with Moose's insane logic is that it's not as though these women suddenly came out and went, "Hey, by the way, uh, this woman that they're about to put the title on is a bully and a racist." That didn't happen that way. Tessa got up on Twitter unprovoked and basically went, why don't all these other women like me? Why don't any of you support the fact that I'm about to become the first world champion in this company's history? And then these women who know her, who have worked with her, who have shared locker rooms with her, who have shared rings with her went because you're an asshole, Tessa. This wasn't some organized hit. This wasn't like, I saw somebody uh, who will remain nameless, imply that, not just imply, just outright say that Sammy Callahan put a hit out on Tessa's reputation so that Impact would panic and keep the belt on him. That sound like, do wrestling fans not consider how goddamn insane they sound when they say stuff like this? Because that's insane. That is That doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> you think that Sammy Callahan worked this program with Tessa going back to last summer, knowing full well back then, because everyone knew back then. Everyone knew as soon as Tessa started wrestling men and as soon as she started wrestling men all the time. Like, I could not tell you the last time Tessa wrestled another woman. Was it her match with Gail Kim at Bound for Glory? La not last year, but in 2018? Was that the last match she wrestled against another woman? Because I don't know. As soon as Tessa started wrestling men full-time, I and a bunch of other people all went, so she's going to win the title, right? And then she started this really long feud with Sammy Callahan. And because of the way Impact tells stories, you knew that this was going to come to a head in a championship match. And you knew that it was going to keep going until the new year, right? Like impact has been telling the story with Rosemary 
and Sue Young going back what has to be two years now. It has to be over it has to be over a year and a half of this story with Sue Young and Rosemary, and it's taken all these twists and turns, but that's how they tell stories in that company now. So everyone knew that Callahan and Blanchard were going to work together for a long time. So you'd think that Sammy Callahan, knowing full well, six, seven months ago, how the story was going to go, waited until the, not even the 11th hour, until the last 10 minutes of the 11th hour to go, hey, uh, Allison, um, I need you to... Do me a favor and uh, just say some, just say something about uh, about Tessa being mean and being a bully and being a bad person, so that the company will panic and not put the belt on her. Not only is that an insane sentiment, like to think that he did that, to think that anyone would do that, it, it's. <laughs> It requires a person to not know how that company does business because impact, even going back to the TNA days, going back to the Bischoff days, going back to pre-Bischoff, going back to when Jeff Jarrett had the book, that company has sticking to their guns in their DNA. This is the same company who saw Jeff Hardy get arrested in 2009 uh, on huge charges, brought him in in early 2010, let him get or saw him get indicted on federal charges, uh, like on drug charges, put their world title on him while he was awaiting trial for his drug charges and made him a mainstay of their roster and of their main event scene while he was awaiting sentencing on his drug charges. That company has never not stuck to their guns on a booking decision. And suddenly the knowledge that Tessa Blanchard is a bully isn't going to change their minds. Like, and the idea that Sammy Callahan would think that it would when he himself has worked there for a couple years is insane. This is the same company who brought Michael Elgin in. And if you have been on Twitter at any point in the last two years, you know that it is a bad idea, it is a bad look from a PR perspective to bring Michael Elgin in. But they did, because they don't care. They just want people to watch their show. They got banned from Twitch today because they thought it would be a good idea to have a segment where Rob Van Dam has sex with two women. This, this company doesn't care about what's good and bad publicity. TNA, Impact, whatever you want to call them, they have bad PR in their DNA. They have bad publicity in their bones. They don't care so long as you are watching their show, so long as you are talking about their show. So the idea that Tessa Blanchard, like that A, they were going to change the story at the last minute. The story that they're telling over the course of the last year with Tessa Blanchard and Sam Callahan does not make any sense if Tessa Blanchard doesn't win the Impact World Championship. It doesn't. It doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. 
and suddenly they've wasted a year of their time. They've wasted a year of all of our time. Uh, I say R to mean anyone who's watching their show week to week. I don't. I don't watch any wrestling show week to week. Because uh, reasons. Uh, but the idea that they would do that and then th- change their plans at the last minute is insane. And the idea that Sammy Callahan thinks that they would do that is insane. All Elite Wrestling got a new contract with T- uh, TNT. Uh, that lets them run through 2023, which is a huge deal, uh, because they've only been around on TV, on TNT, since October. So for after four months, TNT to look around and go, yeah, we want to extend this deal. We we like what you're doing. Because they're bringing in pretty good ratings, especially from the key demographics. I'm not going to sit here and talk about ratings because I don't care that much about it. Um, but that's good for them, and they're getting a second show. What that second show is, is kind of in the air. Ideally, uh, they just have a second show where they can put more wrestling on it. I assume AEW Dark, uh, the show they've been putting on the YouTube channel, that just gets moved to TNT. Uh, and we get more focus on people who are kind of out of focus on Dynamite. Dynamite is a good show usually. Um, the episodes of it I've caught were pretty interesting, pretty good. Uh, my problem is that a lot of the people in their top mix I don't really care for one way or the other. Like, I don't really have any strong feelings on the titular elite. Like, I could take them or leave them, uh, depending on who they're in the ring with. But I'm a big fan of their mid-card. I'm a big fan of their undercard. I'm a big fan of a lot of the women that are in their women's division who don't necessarily get a whole lot of focus, like the champion. Uh, like, poor Riho gets saddled with a lot of the blame for how that women's division has been handled. Uh, but she... There have been times where she's there. She's in the back ready to go and they just don't put her on TV they don't put her on dark they just let her sit around instead of doing something with their women's champion um, so maybe now the women can get a lot can get a little more focus um, and they can my biggest wish for the women's division other than just getting more time and having the champion on TV more is that they can do stuff outside of what's happening with the Nightmare Collective which is uh, Brandy Rhodes' faction they, they've kind of taken center stage in the women's division, um, because of course they will, just like the first couple months of TV, uh, Cody was their number one baby face, because of course he is, and he was still kind of in that role, um, I just hope they get more focus on the younger people on the roster, um, on a lot of the new guys they could be building up, um, and I hope they sign, for the love of God, I hope they sign more black people, and I know I talked for like 10 minutes earlier about the boondocks and about how it's important uh, to black people. Um, but like, look, AEW, when they set out, when they announced that this company existed, when they did that press conference at the MGM Grant, they were so adamant that everyone understand that they are big on diversity, that they are big on inclusion. And yet, and yet, they're company is overwhelmingly white 
Like, when you look at the people that are on the posters, the people that are getting TV, the people that are getting merchandise, it's a lot of stuff for Cody Rhodes. It's a lot of stuff for the Young Bucks. It's a lot of stuff for Kenny Omega. It's a lot of stuff for Jungle Boy and Luchasaurus. It's a lot of stuff for the Inner Circle. Um, Like, SCU are the tag team champions. I don't think SCU have a t-shirt. And if they do, I haven't seen it. I was in a Hot Topic today, and I saw the wall of AEW stuff, and I saw stuff for for Cody, for the Bucks, for the Inner Circle. I didn't see anything for SCU. I didn't see anything for Riho. I didn't see anything for Hikaru Shida. I didn't see anything for Chris Statlander. I didn't see anything for Emi Sakura. Scorpio Sky is one half of their tag team champions, and I can name the amount of times they've put him on the announcement picture for their next big show. And I think it's once, and it's because he was wrestling Chris Jericho. They only have, like, on their roster, uh, they have three black men? Four? Uh, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it's Scorpio Sky, Isaiah Cassidy, Mark Quinn, and Sonny Kiss. And that's it. Um, and whenever somebody mentioned this, like Cam Hawkins on Twitter, um, works for PW Torch and uh, Daily DDT, he uh, he's a big proponent of AEW needing to sign more black people, and whenever he brings this up, people ask like, "Who do you? Who would you sign? You know, who is there for them to sign?" And the irony of that question is that AJ Gray, uh, former GCW champion, is putting together a show WrestleMania weekend for the culture, uh, and the overwhelming majority of the people on that show are black and actually I think everybody on that show is black uh, as of right now at least and it's just person after person after person he himself would be a great pickup for AEW because he's great and he's got a great presence on social media people like him he's a really easy to like guy but AJ Gray, Fred Yehi, Chris Bay, you know, there's all these people who are out there uh, who are just waiting for a shot and they could give it to them, but they don't. And it's this weird, unfair qualification like, oh, well, if you, who's out there that's good enough to get a spot when Billy Gunn's son just got signed after a tryout match that he got because his dad is Billy Gunn. Like, he straight up got a job because of nepotism. Yes, he's a talented guy. He's a pretty solid wrestler. I'd be surprised if he wasn't, considering his dad is Billy Gunn. But he got that spot because his dad is Billy Gunn. This week on Dynamite, 63-year-old Diamond Dallas Page and Dustin Rhodes, both great wrestlers, but both dudes in their... Both dudes who are over the age of 50 wrestled uh, the Butcher and the Blade, who are both in their late 30s. And the Butcher is the guitar player from... <laughs> He's Andy Williams, the guitar player from Every Time I Die. So when the question is, who out there, what black wrestlers are good enough, the answer is all of them. Any of them. Any of them. 
you could just look around and go, hey, this guy's pretty good. Let's sign him. But black wrestlers have to meet this weird criteria and have to hit this certain threshold of being how good of being good enough. Like how good this guy is. Like Wardlow. I don't know anything about Wardlow. Does anybody know anything about Wardlow? Has anybody wrestled? Has anybody watched a Wardlow match? I don't think so. But he's there. And he's there because he's big and he's there to be MJF's muscle. No one is asking him to be this great performer. He has to stand there and be big. That's all he has to do. That's his own. That's the only function of his job, of the description of his character. It doesn't matter how good of a wrestler he is because he's big. So if they can find a guy like that to fit a role, why can't black people just be people who fit a role. It's like a... Uh, what's the website that I don't care about? Uh, Cultaholic. I've never watched any of their videos, but I know, because uh, someone's mentioned it to me, that recently they were talking about things they don't want to see in wrestling in 2020. And specifically, they singled out Cedric Alexander and... Apollo Crews as the type of wrestler they don't want to see anymore because they don't have gimmicks uh, and they are in their eyes boring. Why do those guys get criticized for being boring? But I've had to listen to everyone over the last decade tell me how great Drew McIntyre is. Listen to everybody tell me over the last decade how great EC3 is when EC3 is not that good in the ring. He's fine, but his best work is as a character and... It's, oh, he's been squandered. No one is saying that about Cedric Alexander. No one is saying that about Apollo Crews, except for me, I guess. Why is it that black wrestlers have to meet a certain threshold of good? Whereas white wrestlers are allowed to be okay and just exist as being okay. And not only exist, but thrive as being okay. And being told that they aren't treated well enough uh, by just being okay. Uh, but AEW getting another hour of TV is, or another show on TV is good. It's a net positive, provided that that show is another wrestling show and not just uh, an expanded, extended version of Being the Elite, in which case I will curse their names from here until the end of time. Uh, getting into sports here, um, the NFL playoffs are rolling on and I know that I mentioned earlier we're going to talk about the Patriots being eliminated but the day that I'm uploading this and the day that I'm recording this kind of gives away the game on how I recorded this uh, because originally I was going to talk about how exciting uh, the playoffs were and how uh, my prediction was the Seahawks versus the Ravens for the Super Bowl and now both of those teams have been eliminated <laughs> most surprising thing is the Patriots not being in the AFC playoffs. This is got, I think it's the earliest they've ever been or that they've been eliminated in the last 20 years. You know, it's, it's been five years since the last time that it's been five years, four years since the last time they weren't in the Super Bowl um, since 2016. And it's very weird to see them out. It's very weird to see this totally new, fresh matchup 
uh, for the Super Bowl, whoever it may be, where we haven't seen either of these, either of the remaining teams in the Super Bowl in years. Uh, the last time that any of these teams were in the Super Bowl, the four remaining teams being Green Bay, San Francisco, uh, Houston, and Tennessee, or um, not Houston and Tennessee, Kansas City and Tennessee. Uh, the last time we saw any of these teams in the Super Bowl would have been the San Francisco 49ers in 2013 when they played uh, Baltimore. So we have a totally fresh matchup on our hands no matter who makes it out of the playoff rounds or makes it through the championship game. And it's really interesting to see how this is shaking out. Because if you had told me, if you had told anyone at the start of this year that Ryan Tannehill would be one win away from playing in the Super Bowl. Uh, no one would have believed you, but you took him out. You take him out of Miami. You take him away from Adam Gase. Um, and originally, he was the backup uh, for the Titans. And then he beat Mariota out for the job, and he's played incredible over the last couple games. He's played way better than anyone I think expected that he still had in him uh, after all that time down in Miami. Uh, but he's played great. Um, I think, genuinely, uh, Tennessee stands a chance at beating the Chiefs. And that might just be the part of me that hates the Kansas City Chiefs as a Raiders fan. And the part of me that uh, really liked the Tennessee Titans for some reason when I was nine. Because um, when that first Super Bowl that they played in, or the last Super Bowl they played in, I guess, in 2000, when that happened... I would have been five, um, and I just remember vividly sitting on the couch uh, with my with my mom, um, and we're watching the Super Bowl, and they're playing the Rams, and I just decide for some reason arbitrarily, I guess because I just liked the shade of blue of their jerseys, that I liked the Titans, and so I would pick the Titans in uh, in Madden and in 2K for a while. Um, I had a weird childhood with sports teams um, where I, with the exception of the White Sox, I never really, I never really wavered on the White Sox, but a lot of teams, I just jumped around as a kid and settled into the teams that my dad liked as an adult. It was very, very weird uh, where I liked the Titans until like 2007 or until like 2006. Then I decided that I liked the Bears um, and then I decided, uh, in like 2008 that I liked the Raiders. I don't know. <laughs> Just kind of happened. And with basketball, um, I liked the Bulls, uh, cause I was a kid in Chicago in the nineties and the early two thousands. And then 2004, 2005, I decided I liked the, the Raptors and I liked the Nets. Um, and then around 2008, 2009, I ended up liking the Bulls again. It's it's weird, um, but those two parts of me, the part of me that hates Kansas City, part of me that loves, you know, that loved the Titans as a kid, uh, are at odds, and uh, or kind of rather they're uh, they're in synergy, uh, I guess, in in step with each other, uh, and I would like to see the Titans beat the Chiefs, because uh, the idea of a Chiefs Packers Super Bowl. Uh, makes me want to throw up, and the idea of a uh, a Niners Chiefs uh, Super Bowl want makes me want to throw up. So, f- 
for the sake of me not throwing up, let's go Titans. Uh, you know, surprising to see Lamar Jackson and Deshaun Watson bounced from the playoffs uh, in the second round. Uh, but it is what it is. They'll both be back next year uh, as the starters for their teams, and they'll both be incredible, uh, just like they were this year. Lamar Jackson will probably be probably be the MVP of the league, and it's well-deserved because he he showed out this year, and he proved a lot of people, uh, like Bill Polian, very wrong. A lot of people who believed that he would never make it as a quarterback. A lot of people who believed that he should have been drafted as a wideout. Um, he proved them all wrong uh, by taking the Ravens uh, to heights that they haven't been to uh, in years. Um, I don't even think they. I don't even think they won that many regular season games. Uh, the year they won the Super Bowl, I want to say they won at least one more game this year than they did in 2013. So props to them. Deshaun Watson uh, got hit a whole lot less. Didn't have to get carted around the bus this year. Um, and took the Titan or took the Texans a little bit further than anybody could have really expected the Texans to go. Uh, so they'll both be back next year, and hopefully next year they're playing each other in the AFC Championship game. As for Tom Brady and the Patriots, I think he's done there. I think most people think that, but. He and um, he and Bill Belichick have been at odds with each other for years. We've been hearing about these stories about Brady and Belichick not getting along and Robert Kraft in the mix and just, I think it's time for them to move on. I don't think Brady will retire. I don't think Brady will retire until he is sacked and turns to dust or until he is tackled into an open grave. Uh but I think that his time with the Patriots is done. And that's going to be really fascinating, not just from a football standpoint, but from kind of a cultural standpoint. Uh, because having been to Massachusetts a few times, that New England area, they love the Patriots and they revere Tom Brady uh, in the same way that Bulls fans, uh, Bull fans uh, revere Michael Jordan. Uh, because he he is that to them. He is the greatest of all time to them. He's the greatest player to to at least wear that uniform. And so it's going to be fascinating to see how people in Boston, people in that New England area, feel about the idea of Tom Brady playing for, say, the Jacksonville Jaguars or the Indianapolis Colts. Or any of these teams who, A, need a quarterback, B, need a way to get people into seats. Um, the San Diego Chargers. Uh, you know, any of these teams who are aching for a reason to get a Tom Brady. Uh, it's totally possible that he goes to one of those teams. And it's completely fascinating to see how that could play out other football news the college football national championship game was this past week congratulations to the louisiana state university tigers and joe freaking burrow 
what a what a quarterback <laughs> Joe Burrow is. Um, uh, breaking all these records left and right. The unfortunate thing for him uh, is after this incredible record-breaking season, um, you know, becoming what the third player in the last ten years to do uh, undefeated season, national champion, Heisman Trophy. I think the other two are Cam Newton and Jameis Winston. Uh, he's gonna get drafted by the Cincinnati Bengals. Like, there's no way around that. There's no way that he doesn't. Um, because of the way the NFL draft works, the Bengals, by virtue of being the worst team in the league, only winning one game all year, they get the number one pick, and their problem is at quarterback. Their biggest problem, at least. That's a team with a lot of problems, but their biggest problem is their quarterback is Andy Dalton. Um, so... You've got to assume that they go and get the best available quarterback, which is going to be Joe Burrow. Uh, so he goes from this great program in uh, at LSU to a much worse organization in the form of the Cincinnati Bengals. And it's kind of like a case study um, in, how, in why the draft should be changed. Because the NFL draft, favors bad teams. It kind of incentivizes the idea of tanking, that you play bad all season, uh, and then you get a better player next season. The NBA recently changed the way their draft works, uh, where the worst teams, the worst three teams all have the same odds of getting it. Um, the the way baseball's draft works, uh, where you draft the player and very rarely are you seeing them in the league right away. Uh, the NFL's got to look at the way they do it uh, because the way it's set up right now is completely unfair to college players uh, who they're not going to make a lot of money if they're not the uh, they're not the top draft pick. They can't make any money in college. So to make that good money, they've got to be the top draft pick. But they don't get to succeed in their career if they are that top pick uh, nine times out of ten. You know, a lot of these guys end up playing for teams that are incompetent from the top down and end up being busts or being considered busts because they played for these terrible teams. Uh so for Joe Burrow's sake and for the Joe Burrows of the future, you know, um, for Trevor Lawrence, who I believe is staying another year at Clemson, you have to be willing to change the way that works. You have to be willing to improve upon this incredibly flawed system that exists now, uh, because otherwise these guys are going to get screwed forever uh, and these bad teams will continue to be bad. And there's nothing stopping them from doing it that way because it's incentivized to be bad. Uh, we have to talk about the Houston Astros, or as some people have taken to calling them, the Houston Asterisks. So back in that 2017 season when they won the World Series, uh, they were cheating. And they were cheating in 2018 and in 2019 too. Uh, they were using cameras to steal signs uh, and signaling from the dugout if the pitches were going to be 
uh, fastballs or off speed by banging on bat racks, like putting something in the rack or banging on the roof. Um, they would just make a loud banging sound, and that's how someone would know, all right, expect a curveball or expect a change up here. This was all brought to light by former Astro Mike Fires, uh, who just blew the whistle on them. The league promised they would bring down an un like an unprecedented uh, punishment, and they did, and it still managed to kind of not feel like enough. Uh, the Astros were fined $5 million, and the GM and manager were both uh, suspended by the league for a year before being fired by the team. Um, and it still just doesn't feel like enough. It would be one thing if this was a team that was doing all this and still wasn't any good. Or just couldn't make the cut. But this is a team that's that by doing this made it to two World Series in three years and won one of them. You know, the Nationals beat them this past year, but the Dodgers got cheated. And you hear the story was coming out about the Red Sox in twenty eighteen, and the Dodgers got cheated by them too, and uh aren't gonna get anything out of it. Like the satisfaction of everyone knowing that they cheated is not the same as any kind of actual recompense. You know, the league gets to find them for breaking the rules of the spirit of baseball or whatever. But the teams that were cheated by them, the players who got sent down to AAA, to AA, who got uh, designated for assignment because they couldn't handle playing against Altuve and Correa and uh, who's the other guy? whatever, but teams that like pitchers that were failing against the Astros ended up having these gigantic ERAs uh, after playing them. Those guys don't get anything out of it. The league gets to pat themselves on the back for handling it the right way, quote unquote, but the people who got cheated still got cheated. You know, if Pete Rose can be banned for life from baseball, never make it into the Hall of Fame, uh, for betting on himself and on his team to win games. It feels relatively light that all that's happening is they're getting fined $5 million. They don't have to sell the team. The, the ring isn't getting taken away from them. They still get to call themselves champions. Sure, there's uh, there's a note. In the history books, if you go look at their Wikipedia page, I'm sure someone has put uh, has put something in the controversy section about the team now, and that's all well and good, but the people who got cheated don't get anything back, and that sucks because all these players were robbed, you know, all these different pitchers were robbed by the team stealing signs, uh, and the Dodgers were effectively robbed of a title. The Yankees were effectively robbed of the AL pennant in 2017. And nothing is going to happen. Nobody's going to... Nobody on the field who were at the very least complicit in what's happening, nothing is going to happen to any of them. 
but Barry Bonds is still banned for using steroids. Or at least uh, not ever getting into the Hall of Fame because of steroids. But when Jose Altuve retires, when Carlos Correa retires, we're not going to have this conversation about how they were cheating. They're just going to go in. All that being said, uh, it's pretty impressive that uh, my ace, Lucas Giolito, was able to throw a complete game shutout against the Houston Astros in Houston while they were stealing signs. Because the White Sox are going to win the AL this year. Uh, Don't at me. Uh, In other news, uh, Square Enix announced this week that they are pushing some things back. Uh, namely, their two big projects at the moment, uh, Final Fantasy VII Remake and Avengers, are uh, hitting, getting hit with some delays uh, because a delayed game is inevitable and it is better that they delay these games by the amount of time they're delaying them uh, than put them out too early and screw it up. So... Final Fantasy VII uh, Remake is getting put out on April 10th. It was originally due out uh, on March 3rd. And look, it's just a month, uh, but a lot of people are furious at them because people took off time from their jobs. But quite frankly, that's not Square's fault. They didn't tell you to do that. That's your poor decision making. And, you know, yeah, you've got time off from your job now that you don't have to dedicate to a remake of a 20-year-old game. Go out with your family. If you don't have a family, go out with your friends. Don't have any friends? I don't know, man. Make some. But it's not Square Enix's fault that you chose to do that. Um, Look, I get that a lot of people have been waiting a long time for this remake. People had been asking for that game to be remade for what had to be three or four years when they finally announced it back in 2015. And they announced it in 2015. I get it. It's been five, almost five years since that game was first announced uh, as existing officially. In that time, Resident Evil uh, 2 was announced as being remade and then remade. And then Resident Evil 3 is getting a remake. Um... A lot of things have happened between 2015 and now, and I understand that this is something that kept getting pushed back, but Square had a lot of stuff on their plate. At least this isn't a Kingdom Hearts 3 situation. At least it's not a Final Fantasy 15 situation. You've seen the game. You see that it exists. It's just, it just requires some work. These things require time. It happens. Um, and look, the, the, unfortunate nature of that game is that when it comes out it cannot possibly live up to the lofty expectations that are put on it that's why it's good that they are cutting it into kind of the episodes so they can put everything in the game so they can put the level of detail and care that you want in it uh, without sacrificing anything they're expanding on everything in Midgar which is great and that's the that's the the crazy thing about this game to me is that the version that is coming out in April now, that's just Midgar. <laughs> that's just what was originally the first disc of the game. Um, I, let's see, when I played it, 
because I played on a PC um, years later. I, I think I played that right after they announced the remake, like for the first time in earnest. Um, that took what had to be 10 hours. Um, and they're expanding that into a full game. Um, and that's really, really cool that they're doing that. But there's still a whole lot they have to make after it. So, yeah, this is going to get delayed by a month. But it's not the end of the world, especially when you consider how much they have definitely already started work on. Because there is no way that five years into this project, they haven't started working on the rest of it. There is no way that five years in, they have not started already working on the Gold Saucer. That they have not already started uh, work on Yuffie and Vincent. That they have not already started work on the later parts of that game. It's just no way they haven't. Um, so I think that going forward, that there's a, a chance we see what would be Episode 2 or Disc 2. Um, I think we see that as a PS5 title uh, in 2022. Uh, and I think we see disc three in late 2024, early 2025. Um, yeah, it's a chance we see it earlier than that, but they're definitely already planning it. They've already definitely have it all mapped out. Um, and there's just, you know, a delay is a delay. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. If you ever set things based solely on when they tell you it's coming out, you are always going to be disappointed because these things always end up changing unless they announce it as, hey, this thing is out today. Assume that it's going to be out a month later than you think it is. Uh, last story for this week, Matt Walker, uh, producer on the Devil May Cry projects over at Capcom, uh, tweeted an announcement uh, for something big. Uh, coming for DMC3 Special Edition when it comes to the Switch. Uh, he said that there's going to be three announcements. Uh, one on the 16th, which is today. Uh, one on one in February, and then one when the game comes out. Uh, so he announced the one for the 16th is what they're calling Freestyle Mode. It is essentially the ability to switch styles that you got in DMC5 with Dante. So it makes it a lot easier to switch between the styles, which is great. Dante's different styles were introduced in DMC3. And the way that it works originally in DMC3 is that between levels, or if you find a Divinity statue, you switch to the new style. Um, and you can't switch again until <clears throat> you get to whatever that next point is. So if you, whatever the next divinity statue is, whatever the next end of chapter is, you get there, then you can switch styles. So if you wanted to play trickster for a little bit, you're with trickster until you get to the next statue, until you get to the end of the stage. Uh, if you wanted to try gunslinger, if you wanted to try Royal guard, if you wanted to try Swordmaster, if you wanted to do quicksilver or, um, Doppelganger is the other one. You'd have to get to the next thing before you could switch. 
they changed it, the addition of freestyle mode. So now you can just switch with the D-pad the same way that you can in DMC5, which is great. Now, the interesting thing about the timing of this announcement is that today, December 6th or January 16th, um, I'm recording this on the night of the 15th, but it'll go up on the 16th. They are, or Sakurai is, announcing something. He's going to talk about something in Smash. We're assuming, we being everyone at large, that it is whatever the last fighter for the fighter pack DLC is. And a lot of people have assumed that it's Dante. Now, usually, Smash is kind of a leaky boat. And we at least have an idea of what it is. Um, nobody knew for sure that it was Terry Bogard last time. But we all knew for sure that it was an SNK character. So a lot of names got floated around. Terry, Iori, uh, Kyo, uh, Hamaru. Like a lot of characters got floated around. Uh, Mai. And then eventually ended up being Terry. We don't know anything about what this last announcement is going to be. I don't think anybody has like a genuine clue of what it is. The assumption is that it's Dante because DMC one is now on DMC one and two are now on uh, the switch. DMC three will be out uh, before the end of the spring. So the assumption is that it's Dante and Dante would be a great pick. He's got a really unique moveset. He's got a lot of really fun stuff. I think Nero might be a more fun pick because he's not just a sword character, which is kind of the big criticism of the Smash games is that ever since they started putting Fire Emblem characters in, uh, every third character is a dude with a sword. And granted, Dante is more than that too. He's got the sword, but he's got different swords. He's got nunchucks. He's got punches and kicks. He's got all these things, but Nero's kind of like a weird pseudo grappler which I don't think really, like, there's not a character in Smash really like Nero. I guess Ike is close, but he doesn't have all the gunplay stuff that Nero has. Nero would be kind of be an in-between of, like, Ike and Joker. Um, I don't know, my Nero bias is showing a little bit, because um, he's my favorite. Um, but by the time this goes up, we'll know what that announcement is. Um, if it even is a new character... Uh, which is all it really can be, but it's Sakurai, so it could be anything. Uh, but Devil May Cry 3 Special Edition uh, on the Switch, getting freestyle mode, it's a big upgrade to that game. It makes, like, that feels like it's going to break that game. Uh, the ability to just switch on the go. But it actually, for a lot of people who never played DMC 3, 15 years ago when it came out it makes it like an actual it makes it playable for a lot of people being able to swap between the styles as you go uh so i'm gonna have some fun with that when that comes out um and that's that's not too far off that game will be out i believe by the end of march uh this has been a fun first episode of player advantage uh First fun new episode, I guess. Um, went a lot longer than I thought we would, but uh, this might be the standard going forward. It might not be. Uh, if you liked what you heard here, please subscribe. Please tune in uh, for the next episode, which will be next week. I'm going to hold myself to that and not do what I always do with projects, uh, which is say it'll be one day and then it's not. <laughs>
Um, if you want to keep up with what I'm watching, looking at, playing, consuming, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Archer Arios. Uh, that's print. That's A R X H E R A R I O S. It would be a C, but someone has been sitting on that, uh, Twitter username for like seven years. Um, and I've got a brand now. Um, we'll be back here next week for more rambling about pop culture, more talking about the news, more weirdly timed edits. Uh, until then, take care, stay safe. Have a good one.